could I ask Andrew Bradley to come and give his paper? Well, first of all, if I follow Harry and, and with, uh, start with acknowledgements, I, I have to honestly say that none of my colleagues helped me with this presentation at all. Um, they're all very busy, as you can imagine, on bids and uh, <coughs> campaigns, uh, uh, continuing the hoax story. Um, it's, uh, I'm very honoured to be able to, uh, to be asked to present here, uh, particularly humble actually, uh, having talked to a few people about the, uh, when I see the amount of, I listen to the amount of hawk knowledge uh, in the room. Uh, I'm definitely going to learn a lot more than I, uh, than I uh, talk about tonight. It's quite daunting to follow a head of uh, aerodynamics, chief aerodynamicist, Harry, uh, followed by Chris, who clearly could have or should have been a head of aerodynamics. That was an uh, excellent, um, excellent description. And I'm not going to talk any more about aerodynamics, I'm afraid. Uh, I don't know much about aerodynamics, aerodynamics um, but uh, uh, the, uh, we have a team full of all the skills that, uh, that are required to, uh, to develop the aircraft. I reckon I've got, in leading that team, I guess I've, I feel like I've got one of the best, I'm, I'm very lucky now to be uh, uh, in one of the best jobs in the company. And, and you, you've explained why tonight. It's, it is um, the last... Uh, probably all uh, British-built uh, aircraft. Uh, I did work for quite a while on Typhoon before I was on Hook. And whilst we we really do love our international partners on Typhoon and uh, F-35, it isn't half fun not to have any, as was said earlier. Um, it, to be in to have that control is 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 uh, is quite a, a unique feeling. Um, so, what I'm going to do in the 20 minutes, 25 minutes-ish uh, that I've got, I'll try and do a, a bit of an export sandwich. I'll talk about the last 10 years um, of the uh, the Hawk story from 2000 to 2010. Um, then I'll say quite a bit about the the new um, newly delivered T-Mark II uh, for the RAF, and then finish with a, a couple of slides on uh, what the next 10 years might uh, might bring. So, uh, in pretty boring graphical form, uh, the last 10 years you can see uh, a pretty even cascade of uh, five new marks of Hawk. The 115 for uh, the Canadian NATO Flying Train, uh, Training College, uh, then the 127 for the Royal Australian Air Force, the 120 for the South African Air Force, 129 for the Royal Bahraini Air Force, uh, and the 132 for the... Indian Air Force. Contracts reasonably spaced, so the factories had a, an excellent run at this. Um, turned out uh, consistent uh, in terms of schedule, uh, good quality, so this means uh, good availability, aircraft on the line for most of those customers most of the time, and pretty um, happy customers uh, overall. And it, so it's, it's continued uh, to outsell, outperform the competition, um, and to pay back, of course, uh, HM Treasury many times over on the original uh, development contract through the uh, the export levies of these of these uh, jobs. So, what what characterised those those jobs more than anything? Um, it was the um, customization, customization of the equipments, uh, the equipment fit. 
and particularly the stuff that um, Harry referred to at the end, the communications, the navigation, armaments, defensive aids. So maintaining that original principle, which was always intended, uh, which, was, which was to design this thing for export, not just, not just for the home market. So just to pick a, pick a few of those, pick three of those countries, just, um, just for my sort of uh, interest and experience. The, uh, for Australia, um, major sub-assemblies, final assembly, flight test, um, carried out in a new, new facility at Williamtown, just north of Perth, uh, built as part of the contract. Um, quite a hazardous environment, as it turned out, mainly for the... Funnel spiders, redback spiders, snakes, and everything else that turned up in the in the hangar um, through the uh, through the activity. And uniquely, Hawk was uh, well. Hawk suffered its only uh, a kangaroo strike, as opposed to bird strike, on that uh, on that Australian job. Um, so it was sad, but the kangaroo did come off worse. In South Africa, um, a similar arrangement. Um, in-country, uh, final assembly. Um, uh, but the, the key, I guess, characteristic of the South African export campaign was the partnering, the partnering with local industry. Donnell for the final assembly and flight test. ATE, South African firm, uh, provide, uh, supplied the whole of the mission system. Um, absolutely uh, amazing job. It was... Uh, it was Took a long time to get uh, to get close to them and work with them, but uh, we got there in the end. The customer is extremely happy uh, with uh, with that aircraft as a leading fighter trainer for for Gripen. And of course, on that job, that was where the Mark 951 engine, uh, which took us to six and a half thousand pounds thrust, that's where that engine was first um, deployed. India, um, what a marvelous customer to work with. The um, uh, 66 aircraft was the original order, uh, followed by a tranche 2 for 57 aircraft, and talk of a tranche 3 for 22 aircraft for the, their uh, aerobatic team. Uh, for the Indian Air Force, the 66 and the 57 for the, uh, some for the Indian Navy as well. Um, the Mark 132, based on a Mark 115, uh, again with the um, customer furnished uh, Avionic equipments as being the, the significant difference. Uh, 871 engine in that one. Uh, what's unique about working with the Indians? It's, it's got to be the culture. Um, price is everything. Uh, and uh, time is nothing. We uh, Negotiations commenced in 1982. Uh, and the contract was signed in 2004. So for one-fifth of the time that man was able to fly... We were negotiating the whole contract for India. Um, of the 66 first, first batch, uh, 24 were, were built at, at Bruff. And, uh, uh, there was, uh, an awful lot of training of, uh, of our colleagues from India in that time. And then the next 42, for the next 42, which were built in country, uh, essentially a, a replica of Bruff was, uh, was set up. Um, and we shipped the full bill of materials for those 42 aircraft, um, IKEA style, uh, 15 million parts, um, down to washers in plastic bags. 
metallics, uh, 10 football, plate, uh, football fields worth of uh, plate and sheet, 40 kilometers of, of uh, tubes and bars and extrusions. So uh, an amazing logistics job and uh, really um, developed the partnership uh, through thick and thin. It was a, a difficult journey, but uh, they are building those hooks now um, successfully, about 90,000 man-hours per airframe. Bruff would currently be about 55,000. Um, and that would be the, you know, that's not a, a bad achievement. And learning curve-wise, um, that will improve. And, uh, and of course, the man-hours are, are much more cost-effective over there. So what else is it about the, the working with the Indians? More than anything, actually, it's bureaucracy, um, which I guess we probably had something to do with in in the past in uh, in developing that bureaucracy. We counted up recently 9,988 letters we've written in the last eight years, most of them in response to letters from the customer. So tremendously sort of uh, bureaucratic bureaucratic process. How has the aircraft developed through those 10 years? Um, I won't say much about aerodynamics. All we were really doing is, um, I believe, uh, maintaining those characteristics that were that were developed and, and refined. Um, we've heard about the long nose hooks, the seven station wing, uh, the full flap vein and the part, uh, part flap vein. Uh, so maintaining that, uh, uh, very little has been done apart from maintaining that. What's changed? Most noticeable, well, the extended avionics bay. You get more and more avionics in there. You get a bit of uh, ballast at the back. So you've got to keep strengthening the, the fuselage to get the, uh, the extended uh, fatigue life. Uh, we now uh, deliver 10,000, 12,000 hours, although the US Navy, I think, is 14,500, something like that, and looking for a service life extension to possibly double that. So it clearly is a strong airframe in order, uh, in order to achieve that. Um, so uh, structurally, um, that's the story in terms of systems. Um, what well, Electrical system up updated, went to AC mainly for the radar. Uh, it stayed at AC ever since. I don't really think it needs to be, but uh, uh, HUMS, key part of the system development, the health and usage monitoring system um, for monitoring the airframe, the engine, the uh, the avionics. Key, uh, key uh, system for helping customers manage the fleet uh, through life. In-flight refueling, nose wheel steering, lightweight seats, OBOGs. Um, standby generator, uh, APU, so you can keep it cool on the ground in, in hot environments. Uh, the 951 engine, just following on Harry's story from 151 to 871 to 951, um, six and a half thousand pounds of thrust. Most of, a lot of effort went into the, uh, the FADEC, the full authority digital control. Uh, so automatic surge control instead of fuel uh, dipping, and uh, what else? Uh, same fuel consumption, more or less. Uh, but it's at its completely at its limit now, um, as you can imagine. Um, a key issue, though, was doubling of the time between overhauls, because that's a big cost driver through life in terms of uh, maintenance costs. And I think we'll get there in terms of a four thousand hour TBO for the engine. For the engine. And finally, although we haven't fiddled with the fences and the smurfs and etc., we've tended to stick other things on, like antenna. There's a hell of a lot of antenna on the aircraft now. Um, and that makes the electromagnetic design of the thing quite challenging, because it's quite a compact aircraft. Uh, so there's 
around 15 or 16 there. Um, and that, of course, points to you know, the way aircraft are developing and, and leads us into the T-Mark II. So if we come to uh, look at the last 10 years, not from an export point of view now, but from the development of the, uh, the RAF's uh, uh, T-Mark II, we've got... Um, a development contract which was, um, I think, around 2003 when we got it, but we'd been working on it for two or three years before that. Uh, production contract in 2006, not a large number of aircraft, uh, 28, including converting the two uh, development aircraft to uh, production standard. Um, what's, what's different about the requirement? Um, well, I guess it's more and more emphasis uh, not on aviate and navigate, which is still challenging at this part of the uh, training syllabus, uh, but uh, it's on the um, mission management, uh, situational awareness, tactical awareness, all these aspects of, um, of uh, the way that frontline aircraft like F-22, F-35, Typhoon are driving the, the training syllabus uh, to, to add on uh, a large number of, of uh, what you might call cognitive skills, um, but clearly uh, superimposed on the, uh, on the uh, aviate and navigate skills. So hugely enhanced uh, emphasis on um, the skills for BVR combat. Um, and I guess on these sort of aircraft, F-35, F-22, uh, they're not designed for close in combat. They're not designed for, you know, after the merge. They're, 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 uh, they're optimized around long range, uh, BVR combat. So lots of sensor management, lots of defense aids, uh, defensive aids management, lots of smart weapons management, situational awareness, information management, decision making. That is, is what characterized the, uh, the requirement from the RAF, uh, in 2003. It's a 200 million pound uh, development program, um, and it certainly um, now positions the aircraft well, as we'll see, uh, for the future market. Um, it was competitive against uh, the well-known competition from Italy and uh, Korea slash the slash US. Um, there was a strong industrial lobby uh, for this uh, because we knew this would give give us a lead in the export market if we could uh, uh, deliver this uh, trainer that really uh, shoehorned into the uh, F-35 and Typhoon uh, OCU type activities. Um, the competition are um, much higher performance, twin-engined or afterburning engines, higher thrust to weight. Um, look at it the other way, though, in terms of uh, the way the world is going. They're gas guzzlers, they're not green, they're very expensive to run. And that balance between performance and uh, mission capability and cost effectiveness and environmental effectiveness is, is what, uh, what seems to be driving the market. And actually, as uh, I think Harry said, just, just like on the, um, on the original T1, we were also incentivized on the maintenance and repair um, turn, uh, times, uh, MTBRs and MTGFs and time to change an engine, etc. And actually, we only got £2 million. So <laughs> it sounds like we should have held out for more, I think. Uh, but we did achieve that, and that really does uh, contribute to the uh, the products, uh, a competitiveness in the market. Uh, 
Um, so overall, operational co costs, green, green credentials are all part of the, the Hawk market discriminator. Uh, what's interesting about uh, the T2 uh, from an engineering point of view is the range of technologies that, uh, that are used to, to make a, a little old Hawk look and feel like, in mission terms, uh, as opposed to uh, aerodynamic terms, a typhoon. Um, you just couldn't fit the sensors from a typhoon. Uh, the radar, the EW suite, the IRST, they're, they're too big, they're too heavy, they need too much power, uh, they need too much cooling. Um, so what we do is take a range of technologies from uh, gaming, mobile, comms, software, displays, etc., to simulate, to create a training environment around and within the aircraft, which is part real, part virtual in which, allegedly, and, uh, and the customer seems to be verifying this, the pilot believes it's all real, in fact. It's, uh, it's a very uh, persuasive uh, environment. Um, the cockpit, of course, is the center of this um, mini-deception. Um, everything in there behaves as though the aircraft was a, a typhoon um, or a generic fast jet. Uh, which, uh, so, but there's no radar, there's no EW, there's no weapons on this T2, uh, there's no FLIR, there's, uh, so there's, there's a whole lot of, um, synthetic simulated things. Um, now, it's interesting, I know my colleague Lambert Upping Heppenstall, who's here tonight, tells me that when he joined the company in 72, he was made assistant to the man who was designing the T1 cockpit instruments. And two weeks after he, uh, uh, Lambert arrived, that man left. So Lambert was uniquely in charge of the T1 cockpit uh, instrumentation. Um, and what he achieved in the next two or three years uh, was fantastic because it now takes something like 80 men uh, seven years to do what Lambert did in, in two or three years. Um, most of those people being electronics engineers and software engineers. Um, so Times have moved on, and um, the T2 is distinguished by this big lump of software, actually, which we call OC2, which simulates an air intercept radar. It simulates an RWR. It simulates chaff. It simulates flares. It simulates ground threats, SAM sites. It simulates guns and bombs and short-range air-to-air missiles, medium-range air-to-air missiles. It simulates the wingman. It simulates the opponents, the red air. Um, and all this in a networked um, environment. So you can put up one hook, two, three, up to ten hooks, and they will all be working in a, a networked uh, uh, interactive environment where half of the stuff is real and half of the stuff is simulated um, and, uh, and, and interchangeably so. So a, a very novel, I guess, systems concept. I thought I'd... Um, Show a bit of video to give a feel. Um, this is just a um, 30 second snatch from uh, a 1v1 training sortie. Um, and uh, there's two hooks up there. There's another one in the distance, um, which is the uh, the opponent. Um, and at the start of the clip, it's, it's it, at the start of the clip, our trainee um, launches uh, an air-to-air -air missile against his BVR opponent, which he's just detected using his synthetic radar. Uh, and you'll see that little um, square 
box for that target designation, uh, tracking the target. Uh, and almost immediately you'll hear a bell sound and, uh, and the RWR has detected a surface-to-air missile. Um, and then you'll hear the instructor saying something like, I don't know, starboard. And the trainee banks to the left. And the instructor says, starboard, you idiot. So he banks to the right. And he's then got to work against the surface-to-air missile whilst he's, you know, so just, and, and it will give you a feel as to, uh, Have a I just love the way he, he, he deals with that at the end there, in a very British way. Oh dear. <laughs> but, uh, you heard the chaff, you heard the, you know, a mixture of real and, and, and virtual things going on, but an extremely um, well, uh, uh, effective training environment. Why is it good? It's, it's good because it's cheap, actually. It's cheap, uh, although we spent a lot of time developing it. In use, it'll be very cheap and very effective. Um, it's effective because the role that the hawk can play in the training pipeline can be extended so that um, training sorties that would have been carried out in the OCU uh, can be carried out um, on, uh, in phases in, in phase four or even phase three. Um, and that's what the, the RAF are currently working on, developing the syllabus and actually working out how much they can download off the typhoon. Because I guess you really... It, well, it's ten times more expensive to fly a typhoon than a hawk. Uh, so as, as soon as you do that, you start saving money. Um, and um, it's... Uh, the pilots who've flown it, uh, typhoon pilots, have uh, said, yes, they're going to download 1v1, 1v2 from the OCU. Um, and as soon as it's deployed, um, the RF will start to save around 10 million a year, and that will increase rapidly. So it's a, it's cost-effective training, um, and it's uh, adequately compelling and realistic. It's reliable. Um, you don't have all those equipments to go wrong. Software doesn't go wrong. Quotes. Um, not in a reliability sense. It's. Uh, it's also safe. Simulated weapons provide a safer system of operation. Um, so there's a number of benefits, um, and it's uh, it's proving to be um, effective. That was the quote from the uh, yeah, uh, from the group captain. Blimey! Um, streets ahead of its predecessor, even before the software upgrade with OC2, um, revolutionised fast jet training. Um, and this is this is not just quotes for the export campaign. Um, it really is uh, changing the way they go about uh, planning and managing the training uh, down at RAF Valley. So they're extremely happy. Um, they brought forward the deployment of OC2 from 2013 to uh, the back end of this year. Um, and so 
it puts us in a good position. Same message, though. Uh, this isn't a BA Systems presentation. It really was uh, a long journey with uh, combined test teams, cockpit working groups, with that amount of man-machine interface stuff, joint trials teams, workload uh, assessments, mission assessments, system design workshops, a real um, cooperative journey between ourselves, our customer, and our regulator. Okay, so finally, a few words about the future history of Hawk. Um, with that T2 product, um, that particular, that mission system product inside, uh, the Hawk with all its, um, unique, uh, qualities of, uh, of the airframe, propulsion, handling and safety. Um, well, that does really position Hawk very well. We currently have two T2s out in the US on deployment, um, supporting the export campaign, chasing what will be um, the defining contract in the trainer, uh, trainer aircraft market, which is the US DOD's um, intent and need to, uh, to replace the aging T-38 fleet uh, for their US Air Force training. So that's a 350 aircraft uh, opportunity. But of course, whoever, um, however that is won will probably largely determine the market for, uh, for F-35 trainer aircraft. Uh, in the meantime, we're busy, busy trying to, uh, uh, get the, the T-2, um, exported to the Middle East, uh, not least the, the, to the Royal Saudi Air Force. And also, it's not just about new aircraft sales. That, that OC2 capability is something that um, people want to retrofit into the jet. So the Royal Australian Air Force, who are uh, contracting us to upgrade their 127s, the Indians want to put in that sort of um, synthetic capability into their jets. So it drives the up upgrade market um, as, well as, the, uh, as well as the new aircraft market. And, of course, we're not just selling the aircraft. We, we do, these days it's a much broader set of capabilities, simulators, park task trainers, uh, mission briefing facilities, mission debriefing facilities. All of the flight data is recorded and can be, um, analyzed, not as video, but actually we record it as data bus traffic. So on the ground in the debrief, you can, uh, you can go through, uh, the instructor can go through the, the, the sortie and, not only follow it through, but actually make, uh, do what if sort of debriefing. So if you had done that, if you had selected that and show what would have happened. So it's a, it's an interactive sort of debriefing capability. So we, it's, it's a system of systems. The aircraft is just one part of it. Uh, and that's, uh, that's the market for the future. So, um, I think, I mean, I wouldn't uh, presume to, to, to sum up, but, uh, in terms of the uh, uh, the future of Hawk, um, there's every prospect that this Hawk T2 uh, just happens to be well positioned for what the US Air Force want. They want a low risk off the shelf. They've had enough of very difficult development programs with F-22 and F-35. Um, so they do want a low risk off the shelf product. So uh, we may be there um, and it'll be uh, an exciting next 10 years, I'm sure. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Um, Andrew, would like to stay up on the stage and take one of the seats. Could 
Harry and Chris join Andrew on the stage, and um, we'll take a discussion. First question. Thanks very much. A fascinating uh, series of uh, expositions. Lovely to listen to. Um, can you say a bit with the T Mark II of the ratio of simulator flying as against real aircraft flying? Because so much of what's being done is appears to be simulated. How much do you actually need to fly the real aeroplane? At Valley, the, we have a contract called HSTF, Hawk Synthetic Training Facility, uh, which um, which has been running for quite a few years now. And the, the ratio of ground-based simulation to aircraft flying has gradually uh, shifted. Um, I, I, guess, I think it's around 40, 60, or maybe even 50, 50. I don't know. But it's, it's quite... Uh, uh, it's shifted quite a lot. This this sort of changes the formula because, in some ways, it's a flying simulator. Um, so it, it 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 it's not a two-parameter equation anymore, if you know what I mean. And, and we've yet, I think they've yet to work out how that will how that will affect the syllabus. Hi, <coughs> Dick Poole. Um, I wondered if I could ask Harry when the when you changed the wingtips to be the wingtips that carried the sidewinder and therefore went away from the traditional Hawker Hunter type shape, was that a serious um, degradation in performance that you had to actually improve by doing anything else? Right. Um, well, the original wingtips we had were called, I think, Hugelschaffer tips or something like that. Um, they were designed to try and keep the sweep of the isobars uh, swept right the way out to the tip because normally they would tend to come forward. I wasn't involved in the uh, uh, application of the sidewinder to the wingtip, but perhaps Andrew can say something about that. Um, but uh, you can still do that in general, provided you do things at the wingtip. Um, the sidewinder itself has an effect on the isobars there. Um, so uh, it, in theory, it shouldn't make things worse. It might even improve it slightly. But I don't know if Andrew knows anything about that. I'm not an aerodynamicist. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, I can add a little bit to that. You will see photographs around the bazaars of another Hawk configuration. I think it's ZJ200 that has the wingtip missile installation because another wing lift development program was needed. And if you look at those photographs carefully, you will see yet another wing dressing configuration that I didn't cover. The most noticeable point is that the big fence was missing. However, as delivered in the 100 series, the big fence is back. And I believe that proves a sort of full circle of joy that when you're in a flight development set of programs, you can get minor and minuscule changes but in the long run, sometimes you go for a compromise, and the compromise was to go back to what we knew best. I say what they knew best, up north. Uh, Tristan Crawford. Uh, there's a question for Andrew, really. Um, obviously, we see this week in Flight International X-47 UCAV flying, and uh, also aware that uh, throughput of fast jets, for instance, at Valley is not, is not not the volume that it used to be. How do you see Hawk and the future of Hawk playing out in, in the future market for, for training fast jet pilots and alongside uh, unmanned aircraft? Uh, that's a really tricky crystal ball sort of thing. Um, it's, not, it's not an aspect um, 
that has at all affected the Hawk development strategy. My personal belief is we're a long, long way away from having a, um, in any way, a significant unmanned, dominated airspace around the world. Um, it's a market which is very difficult. It's a market which is competitive. It's a market where the product, products are quite cheap. It's, uh, we're in that market and it helps us develop our technology. Uh, but uh, we, our strategy is much more, if you look at the broader company strategy, it's much more about um, services through life support, information services, security services, you know. So uh, UCABs are important, but they're, they're, they're relatively small in our portfolio. They don't drive the training uh, requirement. They haven't driven it through the MOD. It seems a long way away to me, but that's, that's just my opinion. Hi there, uh, Tim Robinson, Aerospace International. Uh, I come with the Society. Uh, thanks very much for, for a fantastic sort of set of, uh, of lectures on, on the development and, and uh, you know the, the future of the Hawk. I have a bit of a question. Um, one of the uh, uh, it was uh, 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 Professor Bradley who said about the the, the 21st century OCU uh, and less emphasis on on the within visual range dogfight. Uh, therefore, you can go. You can still keep the, the 40 year old, essentially a 40 year old wing. Um, I wonder whether there'd be, when you first saw the, uh, BS systems, first saw the, 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 uh, the new generations of, of fighters like, you know, Eurofighter F22, F35, there on the, on the, um, uh, on, you know, blueprints. There's ever any internal, um, sort of company design studies for a, for a sort of a true successor of Hawk to kind of leapfrog M346. T50 as to, you know, this is what we want um, to do the kind of high angle uh, angle of attack, you know, the high alpha stuff, and to, to really sort of like, um, you know, uh, leapfrog those aircraft. There were studies, but um, it was um, assessed to be uh, not the right thing for the market for 5% of the training syllabus. Thank you. Roger, Roger Beasley, trustee here at the Society. Um, but perhaps more importantly, a test pilot at Boscombe Dam when this thing was going through uh, release to service trials. Um, Chris very accurately went through the various bits and pieces that were um, addressed uh, during development. Um, and this very excellent aeroplane did actually go into service with two major problems. One, the compass was absolutely spectacularly useless because um, it pointed everywhere but north. And um, the other issue was um, the radio performance was not good. Both were fixed very, very early in in-service life, a new compass and another aerial. And I can't remember if it was a top aerial added or a bottom aerial added. Um, was that uh, discussed at company level? It was certainly discussed at Boscombe level. Indeed, the compass was assessed as um, unacceptable, but of course, Boscombe gave advice rather than anything else. Um, yeah, I can throw a little bit of light on that, bearing in mind that this actually happened before I joined the company. So I was talking a lot about the T1 initial development that started in 74 and I joined the company in 79 and having come from Boscombe. So I remember some of what you were saying. Um, this is called passing the buck because the original compass was part of the government furnished equipment package. All right? Um, and sometimes you get what you pay for. Uh, and yes, you're quite right. The, you know, 
the compass could point at anything you liked, and the pilot had to know where he was going, disregarding the compass. And yes, that needed to be upgraded quite quickly. In fact, at the same time that was being sorted, we were putting a twin gyro platform in for the export market, which was fully aerobatable and, you know, pretty much the last generation before inertial nav systems came in. So that, that was the sort of problems that, um, you know, we went through. What was the second one you raised? Short memory, it's age. Radio. Oh, the radio, yes. Yeah, the antennas. Um, again, uh, the, the radios themselves, uh, whichever was the number, and I can't remember it off the top of my head, uh, again, that was specified in government furnished equipment, and yes, we did not do a good job sorting out the, the, the utilization of that radio, and it needed another aerial, which was some wiring, but that was pretty small uh, modification, although on a fixed-price contract... Um, you get the situation where everybody starts posturing and taking their position. The MOD, or the government, whoever you regard, did it, tied the company down to a total fixed price contract. So it was one of those situations where, you know, if you needed a new label in a cockpit, there was an argument over who was going to pay for it. And then you ended up in this sort of long-term argument about, you know, down at the coal face of Boscombe, we were going to give it a release to service, obviously not to do with labels, but, you know, compasses and radios. You would be quite rightly saying, uh, we're not sure we can give it the full release to service. And that, to an extent, then unlocks the possibility of us saying, well, we can do this and we can do that. And if we don't charge you for this, but you pay for that, then you'll get something better. But at the same time, like the story of the the uh, AHARs for the Mark 50 series, we were installing up to three radios, VHF, UHF, and all the rest of it, plus more than two antennas. So although it would appear at the time we didn't know the answers to the problems, we knew the answers to the problems. We weren't going to give them away for free. But can I add one thing to that? One, one argument that was never won which should have been won, and that's our argument that you needed angle of attack. Exactly. And when we try to pick up the nettle after you good people, well, when they tried to pick up the nettle after us good people at Boscombe raised the issue, as I understand it, what happened was, as they rang up the project office in the system and said, we need to fit an angle of attack indicator. And the answer was, what's that for? Right. Could I ask, and I think it's probably all three speakers, Harry emphasized that before the aircraft was designed, you did a lot of consultation with potential users. Those users at that time can't have imagined the kind of things being done with the T2. How did you manage to build an airplane with the potential to go on to do all sorts of things that weren't being thought about back in 1970? luck actually uh, no it was it, it was more than that um, I think we were looking for a, a genuine honest aeroplane and that's what we tried to come up with uh, as Chris mentioned we were terribly short of time and money in the first uh, few years uh, but nevertheless um, we stuck to our guns we, we we kept it simple you know keep it simple stupid um, we tried to keep it simple and I think because of that, we had a good foundation to build. Now, Hawkers did a bit of that building. Uh, 
Graffa has done the rest of it. And uh, they have used what I think is a, a reasonably honest vehicle, one that will not surprise you when you fly it, I hope, uh, one that will keep going, and one that will not crack up and fall apart on you. And I think the Hawk has all those attributes, at least I hope it has. Thank you. Anything to add, Andrew or Chris? The things that turned out good about the T Mark I, in some cases, were good fortune in that born of a good design was a, a disproportionately successful result. People often said about the T Mark I that we'd forgot to put uh, drag into the lift, you know, into the equations, and it didn't seem to have any drag, and that whatever you did with it, it didn't slow down, and it flew very well. Um, so it was a very successful little airframe. Um, you know, the combination of the right wing sweep angle, which were done more for aerodynamic considerations, turned out so suitable from a wep weapons carriage platform. You know, the uh, additions that were made aerodynamically, like, um, you know, RWR fitments at the rear fuselage and the, the thin and the longer nose and all of that. None of those changes ever seemed to make a significant effect on the flight test program. One of the biggest changes we expected is when we went to the long nose. And I remember personally doing the spin clearance program for the long nose. And it was the same old spin and the same old spin recovery technique. Of course, some people say the Hawk never spins. And I agree with that. It's a form of spiral dive. But anyway, nothing changed, whatever we tended to do with the plane. So, you know, that's why I referred to it as like trigger's brush from only fools and horses, you know. It doesn't matter what you do to that aeroplane. It's the same old plane. You know, it's had five new brush heads and five new handles, but it's still the same plane, still the same brush. And that is the basis of the success. And with the modern avionics, it gets smaller and smaller and more and more capable. There's plenty of internal space to fit all this fancy stuff in. Thank you. Anything to add, Andrew? I, I'd be presuming, really, um, but it seemed to me to be high performance enough for the role, safe enough for the role, very tolerant to, to, to role change and, yeah. and, uh, just, just an absolute sweet spot in terms of, uh, aircraft design. And, and then it's, it's easy after that to fit modern avionics. It really is. Thank you. Hi, Mikoki, X Aeroplane Magazine. Um, I've got a question about the Smurfs. This might be a question for Chris, or it might be a question for Harry, or it might be a question for Barry Pegram, who's just handed me the microphone. But I just, it seems to me that the Smurf was an incredibly simple, elegant solution to an aerodynamic problem, uh, a tailplane route extension that only comes into play at the exact point at which it's needed. Can we hear a little bit more about the light bulb moment that made that happen? Was there a precedent to it, or was it a completely new, a new well, idea? Let me take that one up. Uh, it was rather interesting. Um, Kingston had what was called a matrix organization in the design office. In other words, <clears throat> you had down the left-hand side, if you like, a series of project leaders, chief designers, call them what you will, and along the top, you had line managers, aerodynamics, structures, and so forth. And at any one time, uh, the project leader could call on the line manager to supply um, particular bits of uh, information, bits of work, uh, which, uh, if you like, were very specialized. 
And uh, a few people were on the Hawk full-time. Some people, like Barry, as mentioned, uh, was not full-time, but came in from time to time. Very much involved in the earlier days with wind tunnel. Uh, and the Hawk was designed with the wind tunnel. Uh, we had, we did a lot of work in the wind tunnel. Um, it wasn't easy because you had to interpret those results. And that, that was, that was the magic art. But, um, going back to the Smurfs, um, we first noticed this, um, phantom dive, uh, on, I think, a recovery from, uh, stalls at high altitude. Duncan Simpson was doing this and noticed that, uh, when he pulled the undercarriage up with the flaps fully down, uh, the aeroplane tended to nose down and he couldn't pull it up. Later it was found you could do this with actually swinging the stick backwards and forwards, swinging the aeroplane. Um, uh, but it was in particular, in that particular configuration. Um, you heard that, uh, you know, we, we took the bit of the vein off to desensitize the wing a bit and that helped. We were working on the half model at Hatfield, and I can remember, I hope I'm right, my memory is a bit <laughs> mistrustful these days, but uh, I think I'm right in saying that Barry and I went down to the wind tunnel, and we had the aeroplane there, and we knew what the problem was. It was a tailplane stall, and we checked it out on the model, and yes, we could see it. And then the interesting bit was, Barry had been working on the lurks for the Harrier. It's the leading eight extension for the Harrier. And uh, the way they worked was to keep the Harrier wing going to high alpha, these things through a vortex, and that kept the wing working. And um, I'm not sure whose idea it was. I guess it was Barry's. Uh, he said, well, why don't we try this on the, on the Hawk, on the Hawk tailplane? And I said, well, yes, okay, it probably would work, but... Unfortunately, it'll upset the balance of the uh, uh, tailplane forces so that the power unit we had may not be able to cope. So I, I, I think I take credit for this. I hope I'm right. Uh, I said, why not fix it on the fuselage at the position where it would do uh, most good when the tailplane was fully nosed down? And uh, what I can remember about that was crouching in the front of the wind tunnel with this I don't know how many knots of breeze going past me, clad in the warmest anorak I could find with a fishing pole, fair fishing rod and a streamer on it, trying to see where the vortex was and, and what it was doing. Barry, of course, was sitting in the warm, no doubt chuckling. Uh, however, we found it, and uh, it was a most, um, what shall I say, uh, enthralling exercise. Because uh, I, I remember the, the Douglas Drake, the, um, uh, uh, the man from Long Beach, <clears throat> when we showed this to him uh, uh, at the wind tunnel, the five-meter tunnel, um, he just didn't believe that a thing which tunnel scale about so big uh, would do anything. But when we showed him the pitching moment curves, which is how you see the tailplane storing, uh, he was absolutely amazed. Um, and I think... Uh, now, again, my memories are possibly playing me false here, but I have it firmly in mind that we put on a couple of uh, wooden ones uh, very quickly on a couple of brackets just to see if it would work and limited the airplane to 150 knots or something. 
Um, and uh, I, I, it's firmly in my mind, again, maybe it's wishful thinking, but the pilot came back and said, I haven't seen anything so small that was so effective. Uh, and, you know, 100% effective. And, uh, uh, Barry, you can say something about that. Well, I'd just like to say that that pilot was Chris. <laughs> yeah. And I think it's worth mentioning, Chris, the amount of confidence we had yeah. when we did the flight without the Smurfs and the one with the Smurfs on, on the basis of who we had in the back seat. Exactly. I'd like to add my tuppenny worth this little argument. I joined the company when Phantom Dive or Tailplane Stall was a sort of distant dream of, or distant nightmare of something that had occurred and had been cured by cutting away the vein. And the T1 was so beautifully docile and way inside spec for speeds, you know, people hadn't considered ever the need to do anything. And then T45 appeared. And what we found very early on with the T45 requirement, which at first showed us or indicated to us we needed to get the Hawk Wing up to a CL of over 2. Uh, we talked about 2.05 or 2.1, and this was an aeroplane where, depending on how we tested it, notwithstanding what I already said about FP970, but even within the constraints of that, we could get somewhere between 1.85 or 1.9. So as soon as T45 loomed on the horizon, we had this wakening up to realize that vein has to go back or else we're not going to get anywhere near the 1.85 and the other changes we can make will get us to 1.95 or 2 and we reckoned we could get the Navy spec under our belt with less CL than the Douglas Aircraft Corporation were trying to suggest we needed. Hence this three-way circle between Washington talking to Douglas and not being allowed to talk to us, which they would do, to get the right question they needed to ask Douglas. That was a very interesting. So we embarked on this program. We borrowed 154 from the ministry. Uh, we did admit to them we were going to cut holes in the fuselage and mount these brackets and these veins, and they acquiesced to that. And I have to pay due respect to the number of times the MOD and the RAF totally and utterly supported the company in lending us aeroplanes that we did all kinds of strange things to in order to pursue the export market. I should think they got a bit of a kickback from the export earnings. However, that's another story. But we borrowed 154, we took it in the hangar, and we planned to carve it up. Now, before we did that, we needed a date and flight because nobody at this stage within the company had a lot of experience with the original Phantom Dive. And various changes to the Hawk had altered its predilection towards this characteristic, which wasn't easy to get into. Duncan found it when he was specifically told to try to store, to do a stall with the gear up and full flap down. Because the weather was bad that day, he went up to nearer 30,000 feet than the lower altitude. So Reynolds' number kicked in as a factor. And he found that he had this increasing pitch down angle. It was very gentle. And he'd end up on full back stick. And that was called the phantom dive. By the time all those changes had come to pass and we were doing a datum flying on 154 before we chopped it up, the Hawk had got to the stage where to generate the tailplane stall, you needed to, to actually create it. Just sitting there and going to full back stick with flap down and no undercarriage at a sensible altitude wouldn't create the problem. But as soon as any 
pitch down occurred for any reason, like turbulence, then you couldn't stop it. So we got into the frame of mind when we did the Dayton flight of establishing a flight test technique to create the tailplane stall that we could then repeat later on. Now, what was particularly brave that Barry was alluding to is that Barry and I had been at a critical design review over at Long Beach where the Navy regularly held these things and kept attacking the, cust- the, uh, the contractor. And the whole issue of how we were going to, to cure this came up because T-45 was dead in the water without curing that tailplane stall and recovering that CL. So it was crucial. So the pressure was on Barry. And when he presented it at the CDR and the Navy approved it, because that's the way their system works, we couldn't go ahead within the T-45 project until the Navy approved it. They were so impressed with the data presented to them, they actually named Barry Pegram as Papa Smurf. And it was it was at that meeting that we actually coined the phrase Smurf, uh, which is what the Navy called it off the top of their head, trying to create an acronym that was memorable. So we had the Navy pilot declare an intention to monitor this trial, and that Navy pilot was the aforementioned Keith Crawford I mentioned earlier, who had been a tutor at the Empire Test Pilot School. The United, United States Navy is not a stupid organization. They were very clever bringing Keith back as an Empire Test Pilot School tutor and putting him in as the Navy project pilot because they knew he'd know, and he did know. And he wanted to see this. So we were so confident we did a very brave thing, or some people would say a very foolish thing. We invited Keith Crawford over to participate in the proving trial for the Smurfs. So he came and flew with me on the Datum flight when we took delivery of 154. Between us, we established the flight test technique that we were going to use on this subsequent trial. And we wrote it all up and we discussed it. He went away. They fitted the veins. He came back a month later and he and I flew again. And the cure was not just a cure. It was a total destruction of the problem. I have never in my life seen something change so dramatically from a flight test point of view than than that side-mounted vein did. Uh, It didn't just cure the problem, as I said. It it just took everything away. And that, to an extent, was a major milestone in T-45. If that had not worked and not worked as well as it did, I think we'd have been in big trouble. Can I add a little footnote to that? Um, When we, Barry and I particularly, uh, advocated the uh, use of these, what we call tailplane canard veins, Uh, and we showed that they worked on the model, and later we showed they worked on the airplane, we were met with all sorts of resistance from the hierarchy. Isn't that right, Barry? All sorts of resistance. Oh, it's going to upset the spin. All right, we'll have to do some, some more spin tests on the spin model. So we did that. Not a sausage of difference. Oh, it'll upset the high-speed behavior. Well, no, it won't. You know, it's it's aligned with the airflow when you're going fast. Oh, well, you know, it, it, it could, could well. All right, we'll have to go back in the ARA wind tunnel and do some high-speed tunnel testing. It costs us about 6,000 pounds or something. Not as well. You couldn't see the difference between the, the spot points. 
And they were saying, oh, well, you know, it'll upset the uh, um, aerodynamics of the tail. Well, it didn't. Um, it improved them. And we were met with all sorts of funny little things which people were saying. Oh, well, you know, how about the brackets? You know, they're going to affect the structure. And you name it, we, we had it. And we had the most awful exercise to sell it internally. And really, it wasn't until people like Chris said, look, you know, you've got to have it, whether you like it or not, that we really got through with it. But we had to do tests at low speed, high speed, you name it. I think Barry wanted to say something. I saw him when I was talking, but just one thing, spinning. We haven't talked a lot about spinning. And yes, of course, we spun the aeroplane with the Smurfs before it was finally given the um, go-ahead for the T-45. The Hawk is incredibly spin-resistant, I said, basically doesn't spin. It's a tight spiral. And the spin recovery is really letting out of the pro-spin control rather than applying anti-spin control. But not in the T-45. That mother bites when she spins. And that was an interesting program. Barry. I finished, thanks, Chris. <laughs> thanks, Chris. Fine. I think I'm going to call discussion to an end because I think that last session has really shown how aeroplanes are actually developed and has been an added revelation. Um, it's been a wonderful evening on the development, the flight test, and the future developments of the aeroplane. And I'm, I know we've all appreciated. Could I ask Peter Davidson to um, propose a vote of thanks? Well, I first came across the Hawk when I was at college in Kingston, and I'd done some work at Cambry Park in the printing department, of all things. Um, and uh, having known of Kingston's history, I heard through the grapevine that there was a talk going on, which was probably a society branch meeting, at which they were going to talk about this new trainer. And we're talking about 74, I think, 75 this time. And it was probably Harry, but somebody came to Cambry Park and uh, presented on the Hawk and led me to believe that something that I'd seen as visuals in the magazines was actually happening, and that they had great confidence that next to the other thoroughbred, the Hunter, you know, this was going to be the next great thoroughbred. Well, I think tonight we've heard about this next great thoroughbred um, to follow the Hunter with the Hawk, even though it had a different mission, to make it resistant to so many changes. Um, having seen the Hawk worldwide in, in a number of countries, um, fully loaded, fully equipped at Williamtown, um, at the air shows in India, etc. It's staggering that it still does it. If the Indian program went on so long, this is a tandem seat trainer that they were looking at to train pilots to fly MiG-21s. Um, it's amazing that 20, 30 years on, they're still look, they're now looking at perhaps even replacing MiG-21s with the Hawk, and yet it can prove an adequate trainer for the SU-35. It can prove an adequate trainer for the SU-30. Can prove an adequate trainer for the the new F-35. It functions well with the Gripen. It functions well training people to fly Tornado, and yet it was honed on, uh, on sorry, on Typhoon, and yet it was honed on Tornado. A true thoroughbred. I think it's absolutely staggering, and I do wonder whether one day you might be knocking on the door of the Kremlin saying, you need a new lead-in trainer because we've proved you can train pilots to fly the SU-30. Um, and that order might even be of comparable importance to the T-38, which I really sincerely hope you win. So thank you very much for your enlightenment. Uh, a vision of a highly technical engineer with a fishing rod in a wind tunnel will stay with me for quite a long time. Um, and that's the way to do it. And congratulations, all of you, and thank you for sharing. <laughs>